She's the writer of the foot fetish horror classic, The Toe Ring, <laughs> Franny Choi. And they're so petty, you probably think this tweet is about you. And you're right, Danette Smith. And you're listening to Verses, the podcast where poets confront the ideas that move them. Brought to you by the Poetry Foundation and Post Loudness. Hey, princess. Hello, Denez Smith. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> wow, it's so cute how you got so tiny all of a sudden. <laughs> you know, sometimes I run, sometimes I hide. Hunty, I shrunk the host. Hunty, our podcast is too long. <laughs> yeah, man. You, you know, the thing is that when you live alone, your jokes just become weirder and weirder, yeah, I think, is yeah. what I've been finding. Yeah, a lonely bitch equals a weird bitch. Yeah, just less and less relatable as time mm-hmm, goes on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the old older I get mm. and I'm glad that our guest today Pat Frazier has figured this out at a young age mm-hmm. the more I feel like I learn something from the lonely moments in my life oh totally you take out a lot of noise you know yeah. when you say for instance I don't know build a blanket for it for yourself in your own living room and then uh, hang out in it for three days that sounds specific. not a real life example uh-huh <laughs> again the content becomes less relatable the longer I live in a one-bedroom apartment. For sure, for sure, for sure. I mean, like, what I had mistaken for loneliness, mm. that was actually solitude a lot of the time. Um, oh, yeah. what is the difference? Well, you know, especially I'm such an extroverted person, mm. and I think have learned to interrogate that extrovertedness the older I've gotten. Mm. And so there was a time in my life, especially when I first started, like, living alone or just spending more time alone, that I thought there was something wrong with me when I wasn't hanging out with people, when I wasn't performing in these mm. ways. I was just uncomfortable with myself. Yeah. And so there were moments where I said I was lonely, where really I was just uncomfortable with what it meant to have patience with my thoughts and to mm. really sit with them and to not be performing for anybody else, but to be interrogating and patient and rebuilding myself. Mm. You know, And there have been genuine moments, I think, of loneliness that have bled into solitude, right? Like when I mm. was um, living in Ann Arbor those first couple months even though like I had roommates you know that's even a particular kind of loneliness when you are like still in your room and stuff like that Mm -hmm. being in a new place being so far from family having to re-meet friends Those were moments where I was lonely, but what loneliness offered me was a chance to reevaluate um, and reconsider myself and how I actually wanted to be in community with other people. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think that for me, like loneliness, there's like a kind of like ache or want implied it's like Mm -hmm. a deficiency Mm -hmm. um or it's like framed that way for me i think like being alone and then feeling lonely that ache it's been really interesting to try to see if I can fill that with myself or mm. like answer that Ooh. with the space that I can I can make inside of myself and not just like, you know, with other people. Preach um, my good bitch. <laughs> yes. To quote Jamila Woods, I'm, I'm not, not lonely. lonely. I'm, I'm alone. And, and I'm, I'm holy. On, on my, my own. own. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> um, and so we are really excited to talk to Pat Frazier, who is going through a period, it seems, of Wonderful growth. loneliness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wonderful loneliness and wonderful, I think, the growth that comes from curated solitude, yeah. you know, like intentional solitude. And maybe scaring yourself a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. Pat is the current National Youth Poet Laureate, the author of a new chapbook from Haymarket Books, Graphite. And we are so excited to get into this interview with Pat. But first, here's Pat reading their poem, Oil and Box Water. Lesbian Tinder is cute and doesn't send unsolicited dick pics. Lesbian Tinder likes skim milk lattes and late night smoke sessions. Lesbian Tinder has a clever bio about being awkward or insecure or too left for you. Lesbian Tinder has a buzz cut and defies gender norms. Lesbian Tinder likes girls that go to rallies. Lesbian Tinder wears a pussy hat on Wednesdays, but everyone is welcome to sit with her. Lesbian Tinder has no home for hate. Lesbian Tinder supports PETA and thinks black people should too. Lesbian Tinder swipes right on fat girls but doesn't respond to their messages. Lesbian Tinder is vegan, and there's no excuse why everyone can't be. Lesbian Tinder has a thing for butch girls, but only the ones with femme faces. Lesbian Tinder understands racism, but it isn't her fault. Lesbian Tinder must don't know how many of my girls died from water. Lesbian Tinder says me too, means me only. Lesbian Tinder just wants everyone to get along. Lesbian Tinder acts to touch my hair, then tries to wipe her hands clean of the oil when she thinks I'm not looking. 
I don't mean to be the accidental grease stain on anyone's plastic ceiling. I know I am only what made me. Canola oil and everything mama forgot to tell me about who to trust in my kitchen. Patricia Frazier is a filmmaker, activist, and the current youth poet laureate of these motherfucking United States. Uh, <laughs> Patricia, thank you for coming on Versus. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, we're so, so excited, excited to have you. <laughs> <laughs> it's mutual. We're all it's such mutual. big fans. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's start where we're starting off these days. What's moving you right now? <laughs> nice radio voice to us, Thank you. Auditioning um, for NPR. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I'm very moved by loneliness, I think. Whoa. I think I'm very, like, considering what it means to me that my whole life I've been sort of trying to compensate for how I think I look and, like, a lot of my insecurities pertaining to love, mm-hmm. all types of love, like, but especially romantic love. There are things that have led me to being in this position where now I'm sort of shying away from romantic love, not for the same reasons in which I did in the past, which Mm. was like, oh, I'm too ugly to talk to this person or, oh, I'm afraid of rejection. Um, But more so like, I just want to be by myself Mm. and I just want to be left alone. And I think in a lot of ways, like the youth laureateship has inspired this, being overwhelmed with doing lots of interviews and talking to a lot of people about how honored I am for this position and not actually understanding what I'm feeling because I'm just telling everybody what they expect to hear. Mm -hmm. In the pockets of air that I've received, like that I'm getting and I'm giving myself, I've discovered that I just want to be fucking by myself. (laughs) Um, For sure. I'm also taking a gap year, which is like given me so much leeway just to not be around people which can be dangerous for me because I will cocoon in my room mm-hmm. and not speak to anybody for the entire winter which is why things like this are good for me <laughs> um, but on the other hand I'm thinking about how my loneliness is teaching me a lot of the things that I've been trying to force myself to learn like how to be a poet how to be an activist how to just be a person mm-hmm. who is influencing others this space is definitely needed for me to be able to accomplish that right and like mm-hmm. When you say the space, you mean like the, the poet laureateship or? Or the gap year that I'm the taking. The gap year. And mm-hmm. so cool. in ways I have learned a lot about being a student and about mm-hmm. learning more so from popular education than I've ever learned from like CPS and like mm-hmm. being in an actual classroom. And so I've been asking myself, what am I actually taking this space to do? Mm-hmm. Like, yes, I'm consuming a lot. Yes, I'm reading a lot more. I'm listening to a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. I'm watching movies all the time. But what am I actually contributing to myself and my growth as an artist? Um, Mm. And, like, also what cop-outs am I affording myself by saying, like, oh, I just want to be left alone this year. Like, how is that also a cop-out? Because I'm writing a lot of poems that I'm proud of, and but I know just aren't ready for the world. And Mm -hmm. I think I was doing that a lot with my first chat book. It was just, like, somebody told me to write these poems, and so I did. And somebody told me to publish them, and so I did. And I think... After all of that, I'm learning that this gap year is actually for me to fall in love with time and fall in love with patience. Um, And I think loneliness provides all of that for me Mm. um, in a way that being out in the world just isn't doing for me right now. Mm. I've just been being quiet a Mm. lot. I'm going to have that phrase falling in love with time and falling in love with patience stuck in my head for like the next few weeks, I'm sure. Um, Can you talk a little more about what you mean by that when you say fall in love with time? Like, what do you find in that time? A lot of me being an artist, especially since I'm so young, has been like, I really want the people who I love and who I admire to see my work and view Mm. it as something. And so that didn't really give me any patience to like actually put out work that I want y'all to be reading, right? Because I'm Mm. like, all right, I'm going to write a good poem. It's going to flow out of me. And that's what, like, a lot of my career was becoming. Like, I'm just going to write this, and I'm going to put it out. I'm going to write this, I'm going to put it out. Mm-hmm. And so, specifically, at the end of writing Graphite, I started to write poems that were actually the poems that were supposed to be there, but mm-hmm. then... And Graphite was, is your new, is the new book. Yes. The first book. book. Is yeah. the new chat book. Okay, um, yes. And I started writing those poems but then there was a deadline, mm-hmm. um, right. which was something for me that was like, okay, I'm tired of writing this book anyway. Like, I want people to actually have something in their hands to hold and like be able to read me. Um, but at the same time, it was just like all these poems that are left on my computer and that are like 
actually ready for the world and that I actually am proud of mm-hmm. have that time to develop. But where do they belong now that this collection about them is already out in the world? Mm-hmm. And I never want to feel like that again. Like, oh, uh, I don't have a place for these poems that mm-hmm. like are ready now. Like a lot of that is teaching me just leave your poems in the journal for a while. Just leave mm-hmm. your poems in the Google Drive for a while. Like let them fester there, come back to them. And the reason that it's taught me like to fall in love with time is because I'm falling in love with poetry in a different way now that Mm. I like. And I know you guys probably already feel this way, but before it was just like, okay, this poem flows out. I'm going to edit it a couple of times and I'm going to put it out. Mm -hmm. And now it's sort of like this poem is a puzzle that I'm trying to figure out. Sometimes I'll start off writing a poem and I'm like stuck and I'm like, I know what I want to say further down. And I put that part further down and I'm inserting pieces in. And it's just like this new game Mm -hmm. and this whole new world that I'm literally just now tapping into and discovering Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm really proud of myself for that and I know that that has only been afforded to me because I listened to my intuition which was to keep those poems where they were and keep Mm. my scripts where they are now and not be wild to show anybody Um, there's no rush exactly there's There's no no rush (laughs) and that's the other thing it's just like I'm surrounded by so many exceptional people that are my age that I always feel like I have to be like matching where they're at hmm. in order for my name to still mean something and like to some extent that's true that audiences expect that but is that the audience I want to be appealing to one and two what disservices am I doing myself by saying I'm just going to put this out because my friend just dropped something or I'm just mm-hmm. going to put this out because I'm tired of doing the same old poem right sometimes the same old poem is the safe place that I need to mm-hmm. be in the poems in graphite a lot of the things that I've seen you do have been um Based in, you know, your neighborhood and, you know, also family and sort of just like really giving wealth and space to mm-hmm. to the communities that we come from. And I'm wondering now in this slowed down time that you're spending with your work, what new questions are you asking yourself? Are you asking of your world? What is exciting you now within this slowness? Hmm. I think I've always thought a lot about space and that's why I write so much about neighborhood mm-hmm. and location, but it also like the space that I'm giving my body, the space that I'm giving my natural maturation into who Mm -hmm. I am. And so specifically in my body, I was thinking about like, okay, this is who I am. This is who I've said I am. I am a bisexual, a polyamorous person who is gender fluid, but maybe not gender fluid and like going through the motions of all of those things. Mm -hmm. But I think that in my giving myself those labels so early, like, cause I knew I was queer. I like, did a disservice to all of the things that I actually am. And it was very presumptuous of me to give myself those titles because now that I'm like sitting with that, I'm realizing, actually, I don't know. I just have a lot of questions about Mm -hmm. myself. And so my work in a lot of ways are investigating a lot of those questions. Like, Mm -hmm. girl, what are you actually doing with this person that you're dating? Like, what are you actually giving to them if you're a polyamorous person who also may or may not be an ace person who... Mm -hmm doesn't like romance but like sex and like all the insecurities that come with that are sort of playing off of each other to tell me who I am and Mm. I think that's what a lot of my work is doing right now is being like where's your body right now Mm. what's your gender expression today how are you going to allow that to change in the future and not beat yourself up about it Mm. um that started with surrounding myself with people who are asking those same questions and who are not being exclusionary of those questions and like giving me this door like this label is your door, but more so thinking about the labels I give myself as like clothes. Like sometimes they fit, sometimes they don't. Sometimes you grow out of them. (laughs) Sometimes they're not that comfy, but they look good and they're cute. And sometimes like it's just what you feel comfortable in right now. Definitely writing poems about time and how time is changing, Hmm. forever changing all these things I feel, but also looking for that one thing that I can call myself that stays there and that stays concrete. Because I feel like another part of that was that The reason I write so much about my neighborhood is that I spent a lot of time moving. I write about Bronzeville. I lived there until I was nine. I write about Inglewood. I lived there until I started high school. Pullman, I lived there until I graduated high school. There was never one place that I felt like something was mine. And I think I'm realizing that a lot of those ideas of home are also finding themselves in my ideas of like my home and my body and like Hmm. how much of my body is my home and how much of my body is not. Hmm. The poem I'm going to do at the end is about my boobs because I love my boobs and I actually wrote it like I was going to the doctor and I was just writing in my journal because I was like three hours to see a nurse. I was very afraid that I had breast cancer. There was a lot of people telling me like, oh, you're too young. And like, 
that's an outrageous idea. And I was just trying to write off of one, my youngness being something that makes me incapable to like have this thing that my grandmother had, that my great grandmother had that like has a history in my family, but also my youngness being a thing that makes me unable to ask those questions about myself and just to go Mm -hmm. to the doctor and say like, I want a mammogram because I'm afraid this might be wrong with me, even if it's not. And it wasn't. And like, thank the Lord. But I think in a lot of ways, I'm writing about how those restrictions based on something totally unrelated to my ages, related to my body, but in a lot of ways, also it's not. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like, how are people putting those caps on those questions for me? And why is it okay for me to go to the doctor and just ask about this thing that may not be logical Mm -hmm. but it's okay for me to go and check in on myself and that's Mm -hmm. like the thing I'm thinking about the most some of these questions may not be warranted but it's still a checking in and I think I need that just to check in and see where I'm at at every point just because I know I'm always changing have you felt like that's the same sort of restrictions on the questions that you can ask in poetry no I think that's why poetry is very important to me is because I don't see like a wall. Mm-hmm. I know Fatih says this a lot about there's more Poet than one Fatima way to Oscar. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's more than one way to enter a poem. You don't have to enter the front door. You can enter through the window, mm-hmm. chimney if you need be. Mm-hmm. A poem allows me to literally come as I am, even if what I'm writing doesn't turn out to be a poem in the end. Mm-hmm. Um and oh. I think like a poem also like in ways that other mediums don't do allow the theme to escape from that one medium. Like, a poem allows that to become that essay. A poem doesn't hang on to that thing and say, Mm. it has to stay a poem. Mm -hmm. And and a poem is not, like, egotistical in that way. And I think in a lot of other ways, like the writing that I'm doing outside of poetry, like essaying and screenwriting are not that. Mm -hmm. They don't allow me to, like, reach out and go to other mediums. And so poem for me is just always that neutral space where I can start here it will help me develop my ideas um, but it can mm. go anywhere I wonder why that is I wonder why I wonder why, why poetry feels like more like this kind of lab origin space that can mm-hmm. become something else no what is a poem to you I guess ooh is, this is a question okay yeah, yeah. what's a poem what's a poem <laughs> I think anything can be a poem. And maybe yeah, that's yeah, yeah. the possibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess, yeah, I guess that's it. That's and I think it. that's why. Yeah. Right. yeah. If anything could be a poem, then a poem can also be anything else. Right. That answer doesn't exactly apply to like, like, what is a film to you? You know, like. Exactly. It's not just like, I don't know if no. like as many people that's would buy pot. that. That's a pot. That's a bird. That's not a film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, 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 right. But you could be like that bird, that bird over there. That's a poem. I kind of would believe you. And people would be like, yes. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, but that kind of, I mean, also that's what poetry is. Sometimes like unthinkable comparisons to other things. And I think in that way, poetry allows itself to also be that thing that this unthinkable comparison is given to. Hmm. Yeah. Like because it relies on metaphor, that that same thing applies to think of what the container is. Mm -hmm. Right. Cool. (laughs) I'm into that. I'm I'm very into that. I'm very into this theory. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, Speaking of film, can we transition a little to talking about your work in film and in screenwriting and what is your involvement? Like, just talk about that. (laughs) Okay. I'm very much still a film watcher Uh um, Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Like, still that student, oh, I'm just watching these movies and, like, writing things that are very similar to these movies that I'm watching and aren't necessarily mine but are my leeway into, like, what screenwriting can Mm. be for me. Mm -hmm. When I started out in film, I was just like, I just want to do everything. I want to be a cinematographer. I want to be a director. I Uh want to be the uh screenwriter. I want to have a hand in every part of this. And in film, a lot of people already do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, What is important for me and why I keep saying screenwriting is finding that one thing to grow in and then like when I'm ready for cinematography, finding that thing to grow in. Um, So that's been your in so far as screenwriting. Yeah, definitely. And screenwriting is weird because I have never shown anyone any of my scripts. Hmm. Even though I have all these super huge ambitions for my scripts, like I was writing a script um, inspired by Blonde by Frank Ocean and I'm just like, I'm going to get this to him even though I've never written anything that has been seen by other eyes other than mine and I think that's really cool like but also I'm trying to teach myself to stop giving expectations to my work before it's already made Hmm. I think my privilege in film is that people don't know who I am and people aren't looking for work from me and Mm -hmm. people aren't like you want help editing this thing because I haven't asked anyone right Um, and so I'm definitely using that space right now to just like write these things that I think I'm not seeing in TV, but I think aren't necessarily ready to be seen, at least 
if it's made by me. Mm-hmm. A lot of my film work has just been doing the same things that my poems have been doing, just giving it a visual. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the thing that I've been working on the most, actually I've been working on the script for four months and I literally just finished the first draft. Yay! Congratulations! <laughs> Thank you. Um, but it was about my experience at the Pride Parade and mm-hmm. like everything I was told about how it's becoming something for white people and straight people and it's very commercialized. And a lot of that I agree with before because I had never been. And then I went... There was this really strange phenomenon of me realizing that all of my friends did not go. Hmm. And I think a lot of that in itself is the problem. Like, I got on the train and literally, like, all these black youth who look like youth from my neighborhood, but not exactly like youth from, like, the spaces that I consider homes to me, like mm-hmm. Young Chicago mm-hmm. Authors, mm-hmm. Asada's mm-hmm. Daughters, um, even though Asada's Daughters is kind of changing in that context. Mm-hmm. But they just looked like black-ass ghetto-ass, project-ass kids that I grew up with. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was an important thing for me to see, especially when my Spellman-bound friend who got a 3.5 GPA and is published in all of these things is saying that we aren't showing up. It's just like, we are showing up. It's just like, which of us is showing up? And who is valuable to Mm. you to show up in that space? Mm. All these kids on the train blasting Finito and Take Hey, and and the train is literally jumping, and I've never experienced this before. Like, it was such a wild thing for me to see. But also, it was important for me to tell myself, there are ways in which, even right now, all of these, like, divisions that you're trying to fight against and, like, elitisms that you're trying to navigate and abolish— that you are also contributing to. By having that conversation with my friends about black people not showing up, black and brown people not showing up, and then not saying, okay, why don't you come with me this year and, and like, let's see. And so that script is just about that, making the Pride Parade a character study, but also a character study of black and brown youth throughout Chicago and how we are holding each other up and how we are holding each other accountable and when, especially when and for who Mm -hmm. are we holding up. That's always been my goal, like, in my poetry and whatever I'm making or whatever I'm putting out into the world to make sure that the people that I hang out with just on the block and are telling me stories on the front porch, like, that's held to the same pedestal because those Mm -hmm. stories are just as important and those bodies are just as important. Um, I think, like, my investigating, like, hierarchy, especially in my activism and, like, and my organizing, I also have to start doing that on a local level. And by local, I don't mean like neighborhood or community, but like the relationships I have with the people. Right. How am I doing that? And how do I start to unlearn and deconstruct that so that I can contribute to my community unlearning, my city unlearning, and then like scaffolding out? Mm-hmm. Hmm. How does the relationship-based work and like community-based work intersect with this impulse toward being alone that I heard you talk about before, Hmm. you know, that impulse to to incubate and like, you know, like hide away and look towards yourself. I'm going to be honest. There's a lot of faking it. There's a (laughs) lot for the purposes of just wanting to be there for my community. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is aided by like the genuine friendships and relationships that I have. Friendship is super important to me because it's the only thing that keeps me coming out of the house. Mm -hmm. And so like, even though... I won't talk to my best friend for like a week or we won't see each other for a week. I always know that Sunday night I can call her and we are on the phone for three hours. And that's something that sustains me and inspires me to go back to Asada's and commune with all those people. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The wanting to be alone is something that I've always struggled with because in a lot of ways it's made me a really bad friend. Like it's made me a person who doesn't text back and who will leave the conversation where it wasn't supposed to be left. And I think Also, in a lot of ways, I'm starting to unlearn that, like starting to realize how my loneliness can coexist with all the relationships that I have. And Mm -hmm. in some ways, make them stronger because Mm -hmm. I'm able to tell my friend like, hey, I want you to leave me alone or I want you to check in on me. But I'm also able to communicate with my friend and have an honest conversation about what checking in looks like for them. And I think like Mm -hmm. communication is something I've learned Mm -hmm. mostly out of all of that. Telling my friend like hey, I know that you're sad and I don't want to just say, sorry, that sucks. Like, what do you actually need? Mm. And I think that works differently for every person because like, I was just talking to my partner, like saying that there should be some sort of class on how to check in on people. Like that should be a seminar that you can go to because everybody's on Twitter like, y'all need to check in on y'all niggas and this is not what check, right? Like, (laughs) and it's just like, then what does it look like? And how does that look different for every person? And how can I learn to be an honest person who's checking in on these people 
in an honest way with integrity, but also make sure that it can like transcend just that one person or that it could adapt to different people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something I'm trying to figure out by myself, but I honestly think there should be a class and it shouldn't be taught by me because <laughs> I think a lot of people are like, that should be a class. I should teach it. No, it shouldn't be taught by me, but I'm hoping like that that's something that I can help to create coming to the world where it's just like, let's just all sit down and talk to each other about how to be there mm-hmm. and how to support. I think that kind of brings us to the space of like community and care. And I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about the work that you do with Asada's Daughters. Can you tell us what Asada's Daughters is for our listeners who might not be familiar with their work? Yeah. So Asada's Daughters is an um, intergenerational group of women and femme, gender nonconforming, gender non-binary, all of those other iterations of folks working to deepen, sustain, and escalate the Black Lives Matter movement. Amazing. How does a space like Asada's Daughters feed the artistic parts of yourself? Mm. Specifically Paige, who is co-founder and my main facilitator and who, who's been my facilitator since I began with Asada's, has taught me a lot about what a relationship looks like and how interpersonal relationships are super important to the work of organizing and super important to the work of activism because, one, you can't just go into a space and say, I want to organize here because I'm black and I'm going through all these things. You have to care about the people. Like you actually have to know their names mm-hmm. and talk to them and be on the ground, like building relationships with them. And Asada's is providing a lot of space for us to do that outside of organizing. I started with Asada's as an organizer and I'm sort of gravitating away from organizing right now just because of time and like, mm-hmm. because I respect organizing too much to keep that label attached to me right now when I know that's not what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, Oof, that is so... So wise. I just really don't want to disrespect all the work that I know I did when I was organizing and that people who are still organizing are doing. Mm -hmm. Um, But in a lot of ways, I'm still making my activism something that I can stay attached to through Asada's. And so, like, I don't organize with the No Cop Academy anymore, but I am, like, there every Tuesday teaching 9 to 11-year-olds how to just love themselves Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. how our ancestors— found survival just through self-love. I was every Sunday in a garden pruning and Mm. answering questions to people who were on the streets like, what y'all black kids doing out here playing in the dirt? Like, I am doing that work and like trying to find how that is also like super important in the world of making things change, right? It's just Mm -hmm. making sure that those mundane, everyday, minuscule things you're also paying equal attention to. Just And you're giving as much energy as you are giving to the police standing outside of this place you're protesting as you're screaming at them. Like, mm-hmm. um, And that energy manifests in a lot of different ways. Like, mm-hmm. Tasha has an album, Alone at Last. And Tasha's also a person who has a history of organizing. And that album is super inspiring me because in the album she talks just a lot about softness and... Mm-hmm how radical softness can be and I still have a lot of rage but when I was first introduced into organizing it was just pure rage and it was something that I thought I could enter and filter my rage through and that's like an okay place to enter there's nothing Mm -hmm. wrong with that Mm -hmm. but there also is something to be said about what softness is doing for our liberation and what these sort of unexpected things are doing for our liberation I think of the poem Ode to a Sneeze and I forget Mm -hmm. the author but it's just basically about how this small thing is like a groundbreaking thing Mm -hmm. um, in a lot of ways. And so I'm trying to take that with me. Like, how can my softness be radical? How can I still be helping out with No Cop Academy in my bedroom, typing up a poem about how much I love the girls at Asada's? Like, Mm -hmm. what is groundwork? And like, who has defined that in Mm -hmm. the realm of organizing? Because even in organizing, there are a lot of problematic things that people do to each other, a lot of Mm -hmm. harmful things that people do to each other. And I think it's because we're limiting what all activism is and what like Mm. fighting for your people looks like. Mm. Um, And if you're not fighting in this particular way, then you're not actually doing anything. And I think that's bullshit. Like I think that me just sitting there pruning those tomatoes (laughs) is activism. And Mm -hmm. me sitting there handing out these vegetables and them knowing like this came from the ground of my neighborhood Mm -hmm. is activism in a lot of ways. And so like Tasha influences me to reinvestigate that because like a lot of her work, a lot of Eve Ewing's work, a lot of Jamila Wood's work does that like reimagining, entering through a window, entering through a chimney. Like Mm -hmm. here's another way that we can possibly liberate. Like, Mm -hmm. hey, what if we just leave? Hey, what are all these other ways? And I think like that's definitely a way that activism is influencing my art because in my poems, I'm thinking about 
this is the poem that you were going to write and this is the first poem that came out but like what happens next and like if you rewrite this poem and you enter it through a different door is this is something that you should offer up there's a lot of things that are making me think about this but also like I went to a talk at Columbia. So even though I'm not going to Columbia, I still use my student card to get into stuff. Okay. <laughs> um, and Michael Goy, who is um, one of the directors of American Horror Story, was talking about how American Horror Story is a series based on failed ideas and like mm-hmm. how they've kind of carried that out throughout the whole series. Mm-hmm. Just like, oh, this didn't work. How can we make this other thing work? Mm-hmm. Um, that's the second idea. The idea of second ideas is really something that's interesting to me because I think mm. in my art and in my organizing, I've always been the person who is like, hey, I have the answer. Like, this is the first thing and like, mm-hmm. this is what we're going to do. I think as I'm actually coming into the career of being an artist and like, I'm realizing that to always go with the first thing you're thinking of is just Mm -hmm. the cop out. And so all of those people are really, really helping me to like not only make that transparent in my poems, but also in my organizing and my activism. Because so for so long, I was so afraid to say, I'm not an organizer. Like I'm not actually doing this work right now. And now I'm just grounded in the fact that like, give yourself space to be something else and Give yourself space to go for those second answers, Mm -hmm. um, even if they are terrifying. I want to stop on horror for a second because you're a big fan of horror, are you not? Yes. Uh, (laughs) uh, What draws you to horror and how do you think horror is useful in the world? I hear a lot of artists talk about like the thing that they are so well known for and how it was the thing that they were so afraid of at first. And I think horror is definitely that for me. Like, I don't know if I'll ever be well known for doing anything in horror, but I know that until my senior year of high school, I couldn't even watch Scary Movie 3. I was so terrified of what horror movies did to my body and what they made me feel. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for a long time, I was running away from that until I started talking to this person who was just like, we're going to watch a scary movie every single night that we're together. Um, Oh, gosh. (laughs) And it was a lot of like facing your fear, but also like, some tough love from a friend. It was some <laughs> tough love, but it was like, let me investigate what this movie made me feel. And mm-hmm. I think one, why horror is my favorite subject is because it is very rare that I can feel a movie in my body. Like I can mm-hmm. I can feel mm-hmm. this thing mm-hmm. and it sticks with me. And I think even though it's not always a good feeling with horror, like most of the horror movies that I watch, even if they're just bad and mediocre films, like I can still feel that thing with me at least until the next morning when I wake mm. up. There's something powerful to be said about art that you can feel with you. And so I think like after that time of just watching horror for so long and becoming not numb to it, but really distanced from the initial fear of like just watching this movie, I realized that that might be a space where I can talk about a lot of the things that happened to me that I'm so afraid to bring out into. I can't write poetry about this thing like Mm. yet. Mm. I can't write an essay about this thing that happened to me, but there are a lot of ways that I can use the politics of horror film to like really suppress that trauma in the subtext and scare the fuck out of people because I love scaring (laughs) the fuck out of people, especially little kids, which is like... What I'm trying to do, I'm definitely trying to be on some Goosebumps anthology yes. and write a shit like yes. scaring the fuck out of little kids, but also like <laughs> fuck but, them kids, fuck yeah, them kids, fuck the kids, scare their asses. But also it's good like, for them. That's a great quote from the youth poet laureate of the United States. Fuck them kids. <laughs> yeah, that's how I feel. Kids don't like me, uh, <laughs> and so that's just some spite for them. <laughs> but also I think like giving them that tool like here's this thing that made you really really scared but mm-hmm. also taught you a lesson and I think R.L. Stein did that a lot mm-hmm. and a lot of times he was just being ageist a lot of times he was being mm. very sexist like there was a lot of isms coming out of his work but after every episode I walked out with a lesson mm. um, and I think that's something I just want to start working on in film and like how film can provide these lessons to us that we didn't even know we needed or or was going to come from this film because a lot of people go to horror films just for the adrenaline and just for the thrill and then you walk away with something that you weren't signing up for hmm. and like before i say this my audience is in no way like white people sometimes it's white people when but you want to say something to them yeah when i want to say something to them it's white people and mm-hmm. when i want to say something to them it's cis men but other than that most of the time my poetry is just for my peoples and i think mm-hmm. horror film can be a great way for me to just fuck with white people and just also send them away with this thing like and that's why i'm so excited like about horror especially like 
this new thing that I see like sneaking out. I know this new Candyman movie that's coming out. I'm super excited Ooh, I'm about. So excited for that. Yeah. Just because like I was excited when I knew Jordan Peele was doing it, but I also got doubly excited when I knew a black woman was directing it because mm. like I did this whole thing where I'm like googling horror films by black women. And there are few, but there are also a lot of just like horror films with black women in them mm-hmm. that are severely racist. I just watched a horror short film that Brie Newsom directed. Have you ever seen that? No. Yeah. Brie Newsom, like who climbed. Yeah, and yeah, took yeah. Down I didn't even know. She's an artist. She's a filmmaker, it turns out. And wow. she has this short film called Wake. It might be like on YouTube or on Vimeo somewhere, but it's a great short film and it's a, you know it's like an all black cast like in the south it's beautiful i think it's really and it's good. horror yeah it's horror yeah. Oh. i'm so excited yeah to yeah yeah this. yeah it's great oh it's goodness. great it's great Thank you so much. yeah <laughs> um, putting people on yeah <laughs> i love this idea of horror being a genre that leaves people with something that stays in their body. When you were talking, I was I like started getting goosebumps just thinking about films that I'd seen. That's such yeah. a wild thing. What is the poetry equivalent of that? And also, what do you hope stays with people when they read your work? Wow, you're throwing up some wild ones. <laughs> uh, poetry equivalent. There's always that poem sneeze ode um i keep coming back to that but that poem oh yes and we found the author what's up dean young (laughs) (laughs) hey dean (laughs) that poem and poems that like make me think in ways that i haven't thought before specifically for me because i do a lot of thinking that there are no ideas that are like utterly new for me and i'm always proved wrong like every single day um but I think like poems like that that I want to read to my mama and then I want to read to my grandma and say like here's this thing that's like hope poems that offer this space of hope a lot of Terrence Hayes American Sonnet from my past and future assassin did that work for me I mean I don't want to call him out like some of it was like oh this is sort of sexist um Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. also at the same time it was a lot of like here's how you can do the multitude of caring for and also calling out and Mm -hmm. i think like Mm -hmm. those are the poems that do the same thing that were for me not like viscerally like not in my body but Mm -hmm. i know that it's making you feel a way that is not necessarily a good way but also saying like but i care for you and i want you to be better because i know Mm -hmm. that's what it takes for us to actually get liberation not for y'all all to die even though sometimes that's what I would like, I'm going to speak for myself. Um, but like... But when you say caring for, you mean the poet caring for the reader or no, who's caring for who? The poet caring for the thing in the poem mm, okay. that is doing, and a lot of times, the violence. Totally. Um, that's a very limited box of poems like because mm. a lot of poems aren't even really checking for the things that are doing violence. Mm. But for me specifically, like, and I think this comes a lot from my lens of like, how can I get this politician who I don't really fuck with to say yes or no to this thing? Mm -hmm. Um, And like me thinking in that realm are the poems that are like, hey, I don't really fuck with you. Here's all the reasons I don't fuck with you, but here's in which way I want you to be better. And Mm -hmm. here's how we can work toward making that a Mm -hmm. thing and making that happen. And that's just always incredible to me because like, it's just really hard for me to think about ever shaking Rahm Emanuel's hand again. That's a really hard thought for me, even though that's such a small thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that those poems, like, yeah, do that. For the second part of this question, what do you hope stays behind with people after they encounter your work? I think in the work that I've created and that I've put out into the world, I'm hoping that the people just stay behind. Like, I don't have any big, wild thing yet, but I know that I want people to remember that my grandma made this for me on Sunday. I want Mm -hmm. people to remember that the candy lady was a very important part of my childhood because a lot of times I couldn't even afford to go to the jewel that was down the block. My family couldn't afford that. And so Keisha on the third floor, who was doing my hair for $20, was like the matriarch of everything. And I mm-hmm. think like in a lot of ways, that's what I'm hoping that those people stay and those people like, if not even their names, if not even their stories, just their existence and the fact that they're there, like stay with people. Like I said, a lot of my life has been moving and it's been moving because of force and it's been forced from the state, forced from my family, forced Mm -hmm. from just all types of different things. And it's just like, 
if it's not in this physical building, like here's a place where we can stay. And hopefully that new place is the thought of a reader who just remembers a line from my poem at one point. That's really all I want. It's, well, specifically for Graphite is that those stories are there somewhere in somebody's mind and inspire something. On Versus, often we like to ask people what they have been knocked out by recently. What piece of media or thing in the world um, has had a profound effect on you recently, knocked you to the floor, etc. Pat, do you have something that you've encountered recently that you could gush about? Yes. Um, <laughs> rewatching this almost every day or at least once a week. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Yes. Wow, yeah. That is wrecking me. Yeah. In all of the worst ways and in all of the best ways. Like, worst ways because I see too much of myself and Clementine and a lot of that movie allows me to critique her mm-hmm. as this smoke screen of like actually finding ways to grow within myself. Mm-hmm. And that movie is just all around a raw ass movie. I mean, Michelle Gondry is just so good. Yeah. So good. They're also doing Just Kidding, which is with Jim Carrey and <gasps> it's the same people who made Eternal Sunshine. It's really? out. I think it's on like, would you be my neighbor? Mr. Rogers. Uh-huh. Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers. It's supposed to be about that, but check it out. I heard it was good. I haven't watched it yet, but okay. it's the same people who did that movie. Put me on. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to um, check that out. Yeah. yeah. I went through a thing also where I was like watching like almost everything that Michel Gondry ever made. What else has he made? He made The Science of Sleep, which has Gael Garcia Bernal. Yeah, that's a beautiful film. It is. It's also like kind of fucked up. Like if there's like an equivalent of a manic pixie dream girl that's (gasps) just like tortured, doesn't respect boundaries, dream boy, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm Mm-hmm. It's him. He has a bad behavior mm-hmm. out of love, you know, or whatever. But it's beautiful. It's a, mm. Yeah, it's an interesting film to watch. Yeah, yeah it's, yeah. yeah. I yeah. think character, sh- I, I like a fucked up character. Right, right, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah. He made that movie with Jack Black and Most Deaf. Be Kind Rewind. Yeah. Producer Daniel just said he produced Dave Chappelle's Block Party, which That's I watch. fascinating. I, which I watch like once every five months. He also made um this weird film that's like mostly animated mostly like he animated that's just like his conversations with noam chomsky it's kind of bad but it's, but it's interesting like cool. yeah, yeah, yeah 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 i had i had like a few year period of mild obsession with with that man mm. and his overall maybe you have to dive in this is that you made me uh pat you just made me want to dive in i haven't watched eternal sunshine i have to say in a good 10 years maybe I feel like I'm waiting to rewatch it because I just went through a big breakup and I was like I need like a little bit of space and a little Mm -hmm. bit of padding but it keeps coming up on my Netflix being like are you ready now and I'm just like (laughs) no I'm not (laughs) that that was me and Coco on Netflix for a while yeah 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 I also haven't gone back to Coco Mm because you know the tears the tears the tears the Coco tears are real So on every episode of Versus, uh, we like to play a little a little game of fisticuffs called This Versus That. In this corner, we have the series known as Goosebumps. Um, and in the other corner, we have the series known as American Horror Story. So like who wins, like Coven or like the blob that ate everything? Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely think American Horror Story pre-Roanoke would win, like, mm. would be Goosebumps' ass. Um, oh, Roanoke I, was that weird cult series? No, which, which one it was? It was like they were in a house that was hunted by a bunch of mystical white people that were basically supposed to be a native land that they were in, and it was haunted, but it was by a bunch of white people who were, like, witches. And it was really weird. <laughs> it just didn't make any which sense. Was that? That was four. Anyway, yeah. So American Horror Story pre Roanoke will win. Why? Because American Horror Story would just like walk up to R.L. Stein and like all the actors who played in Goosebumps and be like, oh, y'all on this little shit. Let me just slit your throat. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you want to trap me in a photo? Oh, whatever. (laughs) Come get these blades. (laughs) (laughs) But I also, I think that like post Roanoke, like, Goosebumps would just outwit them. Like, it wouldn't Ooh. even be a matter of hands. It would just be a matter of, like, 
am I going this way or am I going this way? Like, <laughs> and that's that's definitely the fight. Like, okay, okay. So it's a season by season basis. Okay, definitely. Cool, okay, cool. okay, okay. Great. I like this. I like this. Do you have a favorite season of American Horror Story? I definitely think my favorite season is Asylum. That is the that one. That was mm-hmm. the one. Yeah. <laughs> Hard agree. Thank you very much for you, confirming. Do you have a favorite Goosebumps book? Return of the Mask. Okay. So that's Ooh, like yeah. that's like the one where she like goes into the store and she's like, I want a super cool Halloween costume. Oh, and then the Halloween yeah. costume morphs to her face. Oh mm-hmm. my god. Um and she's like in on the streets terrorizing all the little kids and just like mm-hmm. <laughs> Um because I just think that's how a lot of my days of the depression are. They're just that little girl <laughs> in the mask, like <laughs> What can I make you feel sad about today? Um, and that's just, yeah, that's the one that really gets me. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Would you please, Pat, do us the honor of reading one last poem? Yes. Mm-hmm. This poem is a draft of a poem, and I thought that was just fitting because I talked a lot about being a student and not mm-hmm. sharing anything. Mm-hmm. And so. And we love a draft. Yes. Here's Might change draft. later. Yeah. <laughs> it's called Banishment Spell for My Titties, and it starts with a quote from Terrence Hayes. Our disregard for dust, small worlds unwhirl in the corners of our homes after death. Terrence Hayes. I unhook my first training bra. I take back your silly names. You are no longer centerpieces cherry-picked, plucked straight from mamas. No longer pit stops for not-yet-lovers. How many black boys have been saved by your buoyancy and chewed you up like inconsiderate sharks guilty of blood? Skin squealing between the teeth, yet no one believes how insidious plain sight can be. I offer my first tampon as libation. I want the eyes of cat callers and bystanders. I want the tongues of hasty pediatricians. I want the fingers of curious congressmen making what they will of my underwear drawer and calling it protocol. Dark magic is a different name for a prison. Brazier struggling to make fantasy all the noise my stiffness makes. Back you go. To them, you're a myth, an old wives' tale. I can't let the world have my titties. Your soft spots a benediction for the wrong sermon. I call upon the sweat of late bloomers to grant you the curse of sanctuary, nipples inverting until there's nothing left. I am not the state-sanctioned violence that sold my grandmother to breast cancer and named control consumption welfare, but it taught me to make queendoms of emptiness. I summon the tricks of my arch nemesis, the hellfire of a cover-up. I bless my titties with the cloak of ash, the power of a grocery store never built. Proof that absence isn't evidence of an incapacity for violence. Maybe my titties will become dust assassins stroud in the sneeze that stops Brett Kavanaugh's heart. Maybe returning my loved ones to God is the best protection I can offer. Limbo, a place we prepare for war and peace. I send you onward with the strand of my mother's chest hair for all of its prophecy. I hex my enemies with your disappearance, an infinity of searching for words to fit the frightening static that has taken your place. Only my heartbeat interrupting this sweet, sinister stillness. Goodness for Pat Frazier. Young legend in the game. Truly. Can't wait to scare the shit out of myself with one of their movies. Yes. Mm-hmm. Truly. Mm-hmm. Here's a ooky spooky question. Ooh, spooky ooky. <laughs> As opposed to sticky icky. Uh-huh. Um, if there were a we just learned this word recently, bespoke mm-hmm. horror movie, okay. a.k.a. a horror movie that was tailored specifically to your deepest fears. <laughs> to moi. What would it be? contain slash entail whoa um the most immediate one is just a world where i'm running through the streets trying to find some penis and um gr- and i'm the only one on grinder for miles and miles and miles oh and I just, my yeah. stars yeah and it's actually like maybe like post-apocalyptic maybe i'm just like looking for like the other last gay man on earth wow <laughs> the last gay man on earth the last gay man on earth to the fill my nine binary hole um <laughs> i talk a lot about my butthole this season That's i'm excited true. for it That's gonna uh, be cute. advertising you know calling my tops into existence and with simple drag and drop tools with Denise's sim- butthole whole space by Denise. <laughs> Um, no, but what's your what's your horror movie? So I'm I'm horny, <laughs> horny. Your deepest fear, horniness. Like, horniness. No one's here um, to let me sit on their faces. <laughs> I feel like the horror movie, anything like high production value ghost movie, 
Ooh. with like good storyline. Okay. And like actually, you know, like deep grief. So for example, The Babadook. Uh-huh. I found that movie to be extremely scary and yeah. it has haunted my dreams. Except I guess the scarier version would be like if everyone was also Asian. So it's like Asian Babadook. Whoa. Korean Babadook, forget about it. I'm mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. I'm in a hole forever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Can I actually change my answer now? Yes. Get ready for this. Uh-oh. Goats. Them shits is evil. Just goats? Like goats as like iconography for the devil <laughs> scare the shit out of me. And so I think my scary movie is just I enter every room I enter there's a goat. Just a goat chilling or yeah. is it demonic? No, I mean, what is a goat but demonic? <laughs> <laughs> they do have really weird pupils. They do have really weird pupils. That's why we cut them up and put them into curry so we can stay safe. Uh, wow. <laughs> mm, ingesting the body. All right, so before a goat appears in my dreams tonight, um, let's, yeah, let's uh, do some thank yous and get on out of here. Um, I would like to thank not just goats but all ungulates for being hoofed and beautiful. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I would like to thank the makers of the dictionary so that I may run to that mug after the show is over and figure out what the fuck a ungulate is. Uh, hoofed mammals. Hoofed mammals? Mm-hmm. Hoofed mammals. Mm-hmm. Hoofed mammals. Yeah, anything with a hoof is an ungulate. If I'm hoofing it, does that mean I'm an ungulate then too? Girl, you can be whatever you please. Yeah. As I, let's do some real thank yous and get on out of here. Thank you to the Poetry Foundation, especially, as always, Idalmi Noriega. Mm-hmm. Thank you to Post Loudness for making yeah. us possible. Thank you to Daniel Kisslinger, our producer, for making us sound cute. Yes, um, yes, yes. And thank you for believing that we are cute and <laughs> continuing to listen to us. You just trust that we're cute from our voices. Yeah. Um, if you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please make sure you rate and comment if you like us. If you don't, just leave that little section alone. Please follow us on social media, on Twitter, Twitter at VS the Podcast and at Facebook.com slash VS the Podcast. Remember Facebook.com? Remember Facebook.com? I don't. Uh, <laughs> please follow our guest Pat Frazier on Twitter and Instagram at Hakuna Matitis, which is the best name I've heard in a long time. Yes. And, you know, I think that brings us to a wrap. If you are going on with your day, please have a fantastic day. If you're going to listen to another one, then we'll see you in a sec. But that's it for us, y'all. Y'all have a good day. Stay spooky. Bye. Bye.